and welcome to Doing Disasters Differently, the podcast with Renee Hanvin, which is all about inspiring you to start thinking and doing disasters a little bit differently too. James, so great to chat with you as always. Uh, Pleased to be here, Renee. 200 days of lockdown. So how does that affect your mind and your body and your work? Yeah, I must admit it's been an interesting time for me personally because this is probably our third lockdown, but our longest one. Um, And 200 days, especially over the Christmas period, we had a slight little reprieve. Our lockdowns have been very different to, say, Melbourne's lockdowns, but they still take a toll. For me, it's actually been, you know, there's a term going around in the psychological field of languishing, and that actually depicts it quite well. Sometimes I feel I'm just languishing doing stuff and it makes it very hard to focus and sometimes what's next how does it work i'm finding you know the the stress of the lack of social engagement for me as you know i'm a very social beast um it it plays on me quite a lot and one of the things i've done is set up a whole lot of both in a work sense and in a private sense lots of times where i catch up with people on social media whether it's talking to you know you or for others i've got a two or three people across europe i have a weekly meeting with and it's a it's a work meeting in the sense but it's just chewing the fat meeting it's not talking about any project it's just talking about stuff so we can get connected with each other and i found that to be helpful i always go for a walk a couple of times a week when we can around here luckily we're now starting to come out of it with winter uh, with summer coming but it is it does play in your mind especially when you're remote in another country one the language isn't the isn't your first language and to find information sometimes difficult and the other thing that i find interesting is the only things i listen to on music on in english here is the news and it becomes slightly depressing all the time as if all you watch in your own language is bad news um so i've sort of worked out a way to actually mitigate that with other ways to sort of watch other things and do other things and activities outside. I was going to say you'll have to work at um, how you can download some uh, Netflix or something. Yeah, we have that sort of stuff, but it's just interesting just getting normal sort of news. And But one of the best things we've ever done is we've got, we live in a house, an apartment downstairs. We've got a family upstairs. And because we're allowed to, because we're in the one building, we are allowed to sort of socialise. We've got a back garden. We've got three young active kids upstairs and uh, my my duty in life is to make them more Australian. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And I think you mentioned yesterday or the other day when we were talking that the little bakery next door is starting to bring out its uh, chairs and tables out the front. So hopefully as you uh, evolve into spring and summer, then um, the outdoor living will become part of, uh, I guess, normal. Now, can I ask you, I obviously shared in the introduction that you're currently living in Germany, um, unable to return to Australia because of COVID since it took over the world. Um, What's been your experience of the pandemic from the other side of the world? So what's Germany doing different or better than Australia? Well, it's interesting. I mean, it's been a, because it's a long, long haul, none of it's easy in different phases. I've got positives and negatives. I mean, the interesting thing, the difference here with Germany is, is, the way they uh, they have made decisions initially was very good between the 16 states and the way they progressed that, uh, particularly in the first few months of last year, they did that really, really well. They got it set up, got it sorted. They 
And and I must admit, one of the things I've been really impressed with is having a leader like Angela Merkel, whether you like her politics or not, but she's already coming from a scientific background. The way she communicates with people is way better than what I see in other parts of the world. And she's done a very good job of communicating some of that stuff that I think other governments have struggled with. And then there's some things they've done really well here is things like you know, you can go and buy a, what they call a Schneller test, which is a fast test, have it at home. Like if we're going to, you know, there was a, we were, there was an opportunity for a few days where we could visit, visit one other family or have a visitor come here. You've got a Snell test at home. You can do a quick test just to make sure everything's okay. We've got literally small little, very small little places where you can register and get your test done officially. Like for hairdressers for a while here, they were closed and they opened, but if they opened, you had to take a test, a signed off test with you. So they had all these little places around sort of suburb, I'll call it, that, that you can go get tested easily and quickly. And that's been good. Vaccination, on the other hand, has been a bit of a problem, but that's, that's a global issue, not just, just here. I think originally they struggled with collaborating with other countries across the European Union for the first two or three months, but they sort of suddenly realised how silly that was and now you see i mean they've been moving patients from czech republic from france from belgium to germany by train plane helicopter and they've been using the assets because the germans have a great health system and lots of capacity so they've done that type of collaborative work very well Again, you know, we always talk about resilience and what it is. And even just a few minutes ago before this, we were talking about I see resilience as, you know, strength and the ability to adapt and whether that is to spring back to what it was or, or whatever. Is the German kind of culture and the systems and the structures, are they more resilient than here? Or have they, or even have they become more resilient just as, in terms of how they've been dealing with COVID? It's a really interesting question because you Got to remember the different cultures here. You know, we've got 16 states and even they're quite different. You know, they're very old. I mean, you walk past the building here and the thing on the building might have the 1500s compared to Australia, even though we've got a long Indigenous history. But from a built environment, very long history here. But from a people point of view, they're quite resilient because they're quite process driven. They have slightly started to struggle when things get out of... Uh, um, out of normal sort of process or normal sequencing. The Germans not, not a particularly fan of the unexpected. They're very bureaucratic, which sort of has its upsides and downsides in becoming resilient. I do think lots of the leaders have learnt a bit more about how to make resilient cities. I think it's focused them more. I th the big thing I get from here that they do, that they sort of in a resilient sense, uh, do a lot better than... I'll say it in Australia is the re the regions, the states, the federal, and even across Europe are thinking about strategic risk very differently than Australia and, and strategic resilience very differently. You know, the programs they're trying to put together that strengthens resilience across the whole of Europe. Yep, they're big, they're bureaucratic. Some may say it painful at times, but the strategic intent of how they're trying to join the dots and, and trying to get the cohesion between different policies in that. They see resilience in the environment policy. They see resilience in the energy policy. They see resilience in the social policy. They see resilience in the justice policy. They are trying to solve those issues 
is it perfect? No, but as I said, I think strategically their intent is way, way far, far more advanced than, than I've seen in other places. Where do businesses play in that? So a stakeholder group that, again, we are major advocates for. So you've spoken a lot about the government, but is there a role or has there been a role identified, I guess, in terms of how corporates or other businesses can play in that resilience level? Well, it's you and I both know something we both are passionate about, about that role of businesses. I think across Germany, the role of businesses has changed over the particular last couple of years. I think that very similar to Australia, it's sort of like the, the forgotten stakeholder in some ways, or, or they'll tell us what they want when they want to tell us. I think COVID has actually brought that together, one about supply chains, logistics, some of the risk issues for them as businesses, how do we adapt? I've seen a different change of the role they play. And it's interesting also is, is some of the programs they have go down to a much deeper level. You know, as I've said, you know, we've spoken before about this, but things like the sustainable development goals or the disaster risk reduction framework, I'd have more chance of talking to a business here, whether it's a big corporate or a small medium enterprise, that they actually know what that means. They actually know what that means to their business or what it could mean as an opportunity to their business. You know, people are, you know, even talking about it, the local bakers trying to think about how they become more sustainable or how do I make my more business more resilient when I, when I can't get people or I can't get products or I can't get supply chains. It's a different conversation now than it was 18 months ago, 19 months ago. And I guess... Um... As you mentioned, we've spoken about that so much and we have, uh, again, a really exciting um, initiative coming soon, which hopefully will put uh, resilience as an everyday business conversation um, in the hearts and minds of all businesses across Australia. So stay tuned, everyone, for that one. Now, you are on the Australian Institute for Disaster Resilience Working Group for a new handbook in risk reduction, um, which is so fantastic to have you, obviously, um, on that. And I'm always, I'm such a big fan of the handbooks that come out of ADA. So can you tell me a little bit about that and what's going to be in it and who's it going to be for? I think it's a great initiative because I think it's, it's, it's premises about changing the mindset about how do we deal with, with disaster Disaster risk, how do we embed resilience in there? I think it's actually a really a really good process. I think the target audience is every every sort of business leader or every leader, um, which will include business leaders and 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 the like. And I think it's very important that we have these tools because everybody's coming from a different starting point. There's been people that live and breathe emergency management, disasters, risk, resilience, but there is a whole lot of people that are just new to this of how do we embed this into how do i embed this into my business planning how do i embed this into my what's the differences between um, business continuity and business resilience what does that look like for me as a as a business leader Um, i think you know that's the journey that it's going on i think it's it takes some time to sort of gel that information about being a really good toolkit and information source to build capacity and build the way forward for people to engage. You know, for me, it's also about how do we get better engagement? How do we get better structures? How do we strengthen resilience? As I said, I agree with you, Renee, in that we often have a the definition of resilience is, oh, 
our ability to spring back. And I sit there and say, no, 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 the resilience is twofold. It's about how do we stop the spring being broken beforehand? And then if we do are impacted, how do we minimise the spring being sort of under pressure for too long? I think it has, it's a continuum that we need to change the definition of resilience and think about it in a very different way. And how do we build that into our business, our business strategies, our business planning, because as you and I have spoken many a time, they are the forgotten stakeholders, but they are pivotal to survival for communities. A hundred percent. And I, you know, I always say that businesses are our national asset that um, are completely misunderstood and underutilized. What's great about you, um, and obviously I've been part of a ADA handbook on um, stakeholder engagement and, you know, ensured that businesses as a stakeholder group were included in that, which was great. But having your expertise your role as International Resilience Advisor in the you know European International Resilience Advisors Network, the intel that you're going to be able to bring and the expert, the experience and the insights as well, which is knowledge and capabilities that we can benefit from in Australia. So hopefully, the handbook is part or one stepping stone towards um, multi-stakeholders better understanding risk and being able to drive behaviour change and mitigate etc. So that we have better outcomes. Now, you obviously are a big part of the C2C Collective and we've been working for a few years now and currently you're obviously working with us remotely to deliver our solutions for building resilience in Australian communities and businesses. So how do you think Australia compares to the rest of the world in our resilience mindset? Wow, that's a a big question. (laughs) Just a little, you know, small question. Yeah, and I'll answer it in sort of two ways. I think Australia is, its bench strength is very, very good. However, I do not think we're prepared for the world of compounding complex disasters continuing the way they have done for the last couple of years. They are going to continue. I think in a resilient space, I think it's we're quite immature in that. We are still thinking in, in built infrastructure way too highly than we're thinking about the cultural mindset. How do we bring communities with us? How do we strengthen resilience through people, not politics? How do we get you know, better engagement to solve the real issues and not just a new piece of kit or a new building. Because I, I think it is about a whole of Australia response. I think we all have to get there and that is that our culture has to be different. We have to think about leadership in a different way. We have to change our models of risk. We have to change our models of decision-making and consequence management. We have to do things differently. There is just no doubt about it in my mind now having sat in a number of different jurisdictions, we have to think more strategically about resilience and then how does that impact, particularly in government, how does that impact long-term policy? And how do we then support that transition as practitioners, Renee, and people in this sector? How do we bring all of the stakeholders in, but also the forgotten ones, like, as I say, the business ones, the corporate ones, and not just as a funding mechanism or a nice to do with somebody's brand on something how do we do things that make a difference for vulnerable communities and 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 reduce the impact of disasters but strengthen our resilience at every level whether it's the individual the community the family the business the social club the the fabric of our existence in wherever we're living and i think it's a really it's a big challenge. Um, 
I hope Australia is ready for that because I think it's going to need to be if it wants to see itself as a, as a player into the future of minimising the risk and maximising resilience in our communities. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's fundamental and, you know, there can't be a better time than now to break the cycle. And I've been involved in quite a lot of conversations recently relating to the new Australian federal agency about recovery versus resilience. And I think the more we continue to wait for the disaster, recover, wait for the disaster, recover. I mean, if we don't break the cycle, then it's never going to change. And it's up to us as the people to break the cycle, which is, you know, obviously, what we're, uh, what we've been in business for a few years um, aiming to do, and I think it was actually Mark Croswell said to me four years ago that I was four years ahead of the time, and I have to say that I think um, James, That's this right. might be, might be the right time. I might have to ring him up and tell him that he was Thomas, correct. He was correct. I think he's, I think that is absolutely spot on, and I do think if you think about where the world is heading, if we don't get a, if we don't get a handle on what resilience is and what it means to us and 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 more importantly the opportunity for us this is what i get really annoyed about risk is we often see what's the downside of risk we can do this we can't do this we that's going to kill us or that's going to hurt us or this is going to but this is the the right time for the opportunity of risk to make resilience front and center and in the long run everybody's worried about the long-term budget impacts in the long run this saves lives, saves money, is more efficient and has a better outcome yeah. for communities. And if I put all those two together, why wouldn't you do it? Correct. Agree. Now, talking about um, the new federal agency, so you've been through the experience of both of us presenting resilient solutions to all levels of government over the <laughs> probably many years. Um, and obviously, you know, we were asked and we did put in a submission to the Bushfire Royal Commission. So you know how excited I am about the new Federal Recovery mm. and Resilience Agency so that there is finally, hopefully, a place um, in the federal government that owns resilience. What do you think is possible from this agency versus what do you think will be the reality? To put, you know, particularly resilience in, in an agency and centralise that in some ways is a perfect opportunity to be the catalyst and the driving force to embed resilience as a mindset and then support all parts of resilience, whether it's social capital, whether it's community or people-led change or reform, and whether it is also infrastructure um, initiatives, all those things, but it needs the cultural change that sends the message to all stakeholders. This is a new game we're in and this is the new purpose we're here for. And our vision is to make Australia more resilient, which has yeah. also the capacity to recover when and if we're impacted. You know, my great concern is they don't take up that opportunity because that'll be disappointing if they don't. I think it's setting up in the right way at the moment. And I think they've got great opportunities to do that. They'll just need to get the right people in the right room doing the right things. They are prime to make a massive difference to how Australia operates, both in a resilience perspective, but the impact of long-term strategic policy on Australia is a great outcome for all if they can get it together. And I hope they do and we'll be there to support them because I do think, as you are, I am excited about it. I think it's probably one of the best moves they've made in a long time. 
Yeah, 100% same. I'm super excited and been having some early conversations with um, those in my network too. And obviously they're at the early stage. It doesn't formally kick off or it formally kicks off from the 1st of July, but definitely exciting to be able to have some conversations now and see what change we can contribute to as well. Now, my final question is always the same, as you know, Mm -hmm. because I have done this with you before. So what would be the two things you'd like to be done differently in the disaster space? As I said, you always ask this question. I think it's a, a fantastic question to ask because each time you ask me, I actually have some different sorts of things. But for me, the things we've got to do differently is engagement. I think we've had old models of, of engagement. And, you know, we, if I hear one other groups of people saying, oh, we've really engaged with them. No, no, you've just communicated with them. You know, we've got to build trusted networks. So for me, this is the time to make that come alive. When we talk about engagement, communication and trusted networks. We have to do that differently because it'll be the thing that'll save us. You know, building on some of the work with Daniel Aldrich's around social capital, those sorts of things, they are the fundamental to getting this right. The other thing to do differently is examine the language we use. One thing sitting in a country where English is a second language and the first language isn't my first language of German and I'm learning it and I'm coming along. One of the things for me is language. And it's not about speaking the same language of English to English. It's actually speaking the same voice that we understand and listen to each other. I am so over people not listening to communities and to people giving some advice. It's a missed opportunity of not understanding the language they're talking. And it may be the same language, English to English, German to German, but we miss that great opportunity of actively listening to each other and understanding what are they trying to tell me and what do I do with that and how do I solve that problem instead of just saying, yep, yep, I'm sick of being in meetings with people going, yep, 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 yep to me, uh, where I sit there and say, stop and listen. And then put a co-design a plan to make a difference. Yeah, I think I remember um, doing one of my early podcasts with John Blackburn and he was very much the same about language because it's imperative that we all speak the same thing and and get the same thing from the words we speak because, again, even resilience is a word Mm. um, has so many different levels and, and meanings associated with it. So we really need to clearly articulate and ensure that all stakeholder groups see resilience as resilience and um and and you know and work to that as much as possible so that we can start sharing the responsibility because we know what the responsibility needs to be. James, thank you so much for your time. Obviously we talk a lot, but I always like having you on the podcast and bringing in your insights. So today I've been talking to James Ritchie. He's the director of Thamani, who's a principal consultant with our C2C collective. And we've been talking about his 200 days of lockdown. Really hope that the lockdown lifts over there soon, but that it doesn't then set itself in here for the winter. So hopefully we can all live out of lockdown soon, but really great to chat with you. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Renee. It's always a pleasure. It's always good fun. And and we are talking about the things that need to be talked about. So thank you so much and uh, have a lovely day. And in Germany, as they say, Wiedersehen. That's the end of this episode of Doing Disasters Differently, the podcast, which I hope you found to be relevant, informative and inspiring. If you're interested in participating in the conversation or to connect with me personally, please visit corporate2community.com. Until the next episode, stay safe and remember we all have a role to play in thinking differently 
and doing differently before, during and after disasters.